Hello, this is Joel Marcy, host of the Diff Podcast. The podcast you're about to hear was recorded on October 2nd, 2019, and today is November 18th, 2019. And while the content of the podcast is all still relevant and still awesome, there are a couple of things that have happened that you may be interested in. Uh, for example, on October 15th, um, the 21 initial members of the Libra Association formally signed on to the Libra Association Charter and former Liza Libra Association Council. And on November 15th, the five-month progress report about Libra was also published. You can find this information on Libra.org Libra and developers.libra.org slash blog. And in the podcast, I made a prediction that this podcast would get out before November, and that was wrong, but hopefully you still enjoy the content anyway. And now let's get to it. On this episode of The Diff, recorded October 2nd, 2019, Eric Nakagawa returns to talk about the Libra Project. Libra's mission is to enable a simple global currency and financial infrastructure that empowers billions of people. Here, Eric describe how Libra works, how validator nodes work, what parts of it are open sourced, the difference between Libra and Calibra, and hear me make up a new word related to philanthropy. Let's get to it. Hey, Eric, welcome back. Um... You were on episode one of the Diff, uh, our first inaugural episode, um, when you were a developer advocate on the open source team. I think we talked about open source at Facebook a little bit, and now you're the lead on the open sourcing of Libra. So um, thanks for coming back. Uh, can you tell us a bit about what Libra is and how you ended up leading the open source efforts there? Hey, Joel. Thanks for having me back. Uh, for folks who are listening in, my name is Eric Nakagawa. Uh, and I'm heading up the open source effort on the Calibra team at Facebook, which is um, helping to build the Libra, uh, the Libra blockchain project that was announced back in June. Um, and you're right, it's uh, quite big of a change. Um, last time we met, I think we were talking about dev advocacy and all the things we love about that particular role at Facebook and, you know, just in general. And... It's changed quite a bit now. I think uh, the, the work that I'm doing now is a little bit wider in scope. And at the end of the day, I feel like it's really exciting project. Um, the, the project is very ambitious and be happy to talk about, I think, some of the things that uh, we're working on. Excellent. Um, can you kind for our audience kind of give an overview just, just at a high level, what is Libra? What does it do? Got it. Yes. Uh, so Libra or the Libra project is a a blockchain project, which is a financial technology that allows for financial transactions to happen in a public way that the public or the you know the rest of the world can kind of peer into and uh, and and see um, what's happening, who's doing what, who's sending things here and there, um, which is very different from traditional sorts of financial models. And it's not the first blockchain project, but it is um, one of the first blockchain projects from Facebook. Um, and it's really it's been built off of a lot of technologies um, and progress that's been made by other um, projects like Bitcoin, Ethereum, like all those projects that um, a lot of folks may know about now um, only really came up about in the last, um, you know, 10 or so years. So you mentioned Bitcoin, and I think a lot of our audience probably has heard of it as is Libra just another Bitcoin, or is it? Um, does it have? Does it serve a different purpose? Um, can you kind of describe the differences there between Got it. So, Libra and other yeah, crypto, yeah. Crypto, cryptocurrencies? 
So yeah, uh, let me explain every single crypto. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No. There's a ton of <laughs> cryptocurrency projects yeah. out there, and the great thing is that since Bitcoin was launched, um, it introduced kind of a new way of thinking. So the way I look at uh, Bitcoin itself is. Um, it was written starting with a white paper um, written by the famous Satoshi Nakamoto, who we don't know if it's a real person or a group of people, but they, uh, that person released a white paper, and alongside of it was an implementation for what the white paper had outlined, and that was a you know a Bitcoin um, mining uh, software application. And it did two things. One, it connected with other nodes, so it created a network, and two, it did a, this thing called proof-of-work, and with proof of work, what's required is um, uh, all computers on the network, all the miners, quote unquote, um, are trying to solve complex mathematical equations to come to an answer uh, for a particular set of transactions. And we call this a, a block reward. And this is a very common, um, the idea of like doing work or having a computer do work, either a CPU or a GPU, is, is becoming quite a common method for proof of work type blockchain projects. Uh, the project, the Libra project though is very different. Um, it doesn't have that component. So it doesn't have something called a proof of work. It has something more of like a proof of stake or even then it's like it doesn't really have the same methodology for determining whether or not a transaction is legitimate. And what makes it different is there are or will be in the future, I think, a hundred uh, nodes or a hundred uh, partners that are part of uh, a large organization helping to guide along the Libra uh, technology. And each of them are going to run a node. And a node is more than just one particular server or or a computer, it's actually um, several individual components, either servers, um, nodes, either full nodes, or things that kind of keep track of the activity on the network. Um, and, and then there's going to be validators that will go through and determine the validity of transactions that are trying to be processed. And it happens quite quickly, um, but it doesn't have the same component of the sense of mining. So there's no, you know, there's no uh, room full of GPUs or special um, special hardware that's running in a in a room somewhere that's just chugging along, consuming a bunch of electricity, trying to solve mathematical computations. Instead, the system is set up in a way where um, a certain amount of the nodes themselves communicate with each other, and they determine by keeping track of the history of previous transactions um, whether or not the next transaction or the future transaction is is accurate. And if it is, they all come together and then decide whether or not they um, agree um, that something is valid. And if it is, they all they all agree and they all write that to the you know the blockchain itself, and it kind of creates another sort of point in time or state for uh, for the Libra uh, network itself. So, Eric, you mentioned about all these nodes; they work together to kind of you know agree that um, a certain transaction has is is true and has the right fidelity. Um, hopefully I got that right. But um, what happens if the nodes don't agree? All right. So that's a, that's a really good question. What if the nodes don't agree? Well, in the case of the Libra core technology, I think with the current, the current technology itself or the algorithm that we're using, um, I think we require something like, is it 30%? Um, I need to check my notes, um, but hey, this is a we're we're dog fooding here. Um, the network 
should not get into that particular state. If it does, um, I actually don't know. What happened? How would a project? How would the how would the network get into state where it did not agree? Yeah, I don't know if like if something could some can some intermediary inject itself into the process where like you know the first few nodes are agreeing and then something happens then all these other nodes yeah. don't. I don't know. Yeah, that's actually a really good question. I think the the best way to think think about the network is how does it get set up, right? Like what what is a node on the network? If you look at something like Bitcoin, um, it's a completely trustless network. And it has a lot of benefits here. It's permissionless. Um, that's a common method for describing Bitcoin. Permissionless, trustless. And in that case, um, any node on the network could be submitting transactions in. And if they're submitting transactions in, um, you kind of, you don't, it's, there is no trust. So you don't know if it's valid or not. And you specifically um, require that particular network and all the other kind of nodes or miners to determine on their own whether or not a transaction is valid. And that's why, in most cases, um, you have to wait a certain number of transactions or a certain number of blocks before your transaction is complete. Okay, so in, in Bitcoin, I think um, at the current state, uh, the expected amount is like six transactions. After six, you're generally okay. Um, and that's because it's had enough time, the network has had enough time to kind of independently solve for and include valid transactions and other blocks. With with Libra network, um, each each node um, joins the network, but there's only a certain amount of nodes. And each of those nodes, um, and what makes, again, Libra different, is each of those nodes is run by a founding member. And so well, let's talk about what a founding member is. And let's also talk about the kind of the core difference between something like Libra versus something like Bitcoin or Ethereum. Um, the Libra project built by the team at Calibra and soon the rest of the world, thanks to open source, um, starts off, uh, started off with a set of kind of founding members. And these people are people that believe in the idea that, you know, uh, financial technology could be improved. And this is a chance to kind of prove that theory out. And in, in part, in partly in joining the association, um, the association is the organization that helps to administer the technology, keep advancing it, and also to support the members themselves. Um, as a part of joining, um, part, they, they pay in some money into the association to kind of bootstrap and get it started. And this plays out further down the road. But in addition to having paid and put some skin in the game, they also must run and maintain a node. And so um, the total number of validators... Um, at this point in time, uh, is estimated to be 100. And the reason for that is we expect to have 100 founding members. And these 100 founding members, um, 100 founding members, they are, they are sort of, they are whitelisted. So there's only going to be a set amount of, of validators on the network. And as long as, um, I think as long as like 60% or 66% of the network agrees, then everybody agrees. Ah. And the reason for this sort of, this sort of uh, wiggle room is that um, sometimes there's network latency. Sometimes, you know, things take longer to arrive and in doing so you still have to move forward. So the network still has to, you know, uh, get to the next point. Uh, it needs to agree on the current, current set of transactions. And the way that they currently do that is by um, communicating with all the other nodes. And so 
if, for example, someone tries to, one, inject a node into the network, well, that won't work because um, the 100 all know about, well, the, each of the 100 knows about the others. Yeah. And if a new one tries to join, well, that's going to be a problem because uh, they, they won't have been configured to know about it. So um, in that from that kind of viewpoint, I don't think it's likely um, for someone to kind of like suddenly add a new node and then suddenly they are transacting or submitting false transactions. So that whole subset of issues, I think, is kind of, you know, not a, a potential problem. I mean, that could change as the the quarter implementation changes, but that's kind of currently how I see it. And then now let's talk about how transactions get onto the network. So for a transaction to make it to the network, it has to go through a validator. Um, and the validators, again, would there are only going to be about 100 um, actual validators that do the work. And over time, I could see the design of this expanding so that you have maybe transaction receivers. I don't know. I'm making stuff up here. But like, it's unlikely for the general design of it to change too much. Um, and so those transactions have to go through at least one node validator. And in going through one node validator, if that node validator thinks that it's valid, then um, then it would conf you know kind of confer with other nodes to determine if that is true. So for it to for someone to fool uh, the blockchain, they would have to one be able to fool the the node for getting the information in, and then second, they have to fool at least you know uh, a majority of the uh, network okay. itself. Now, when the network network is small. Um, if the network was only, you know, three people, then getting 66% of the nodes tricked would seem, you know, maybe a little bit easier than trying to fool, you know, 66 of them. So there's a lot of, I think, piece uh, technology or software built in configuration-wise for kind of limiting how people would uh, kind of like submit fake transactions. You've said like, you said a bunch of awesome stuff here and, and tell me if we're going down like, too much of a rabbit hole on these nodes in the network. But so you mentioned there's a hundred founding members, each of which will have a node. Um, as those, as the number of supporters of Libra increases, so let's say we get to a thousand or something at some point, does that mean like over time the network becomes more reliable because now you're having more percentages of nodes having to agree that a transaction is truthful and valid because that, that if you have a thousand you have 600 that have to agree um is, is it better as it gets bigger does it make it more stable or does so, it or or can there be too many nodes where it becomes kind of not it, it the latency becomes too big that these transactions become slow so i'm kind of interested if you know how that might work yeah so i mean i think you're talking about an area of like focus uh research so I think it's an area where people are trying to determine what the kind of theoretical limit is on the network. And I think we chose 100 um, for, you know, for simple reasons. I think the, the founding members being 100 um, makes sense at that particular, you know, at the time of the launch. I think um, the reasoning for having a Libra Association was so that the project uh, was an effort that wasn't just built by Facebook, but it was built by um, other organizations that care about the future of financial technology. Um, and so I think as that, as that number expands or as people get more and more interested or as a network becomes more proven, um, I could see the algorithm having, or, you know, parts of the Libra core technology having to react to a kind of different state of the world. Um, I'm not necessarily a big believer in saying, you know, 
there's an unlimited need for these notes. Actually, I would love to know, you know, even for myself, like how would I in my house keep like a, you know, a, a full backup of the Libra network? That'd be kind of cool to just kind of have, or especially if you're like building apps, like it'd be cool to like on AWS, just run like a cache copy of the network. Yeah. Um, it would speed up development and make it easier to not have to hit or, you know, go through like a single choking point. Um, and so I think the network will change. I think, uh, having spoken to some of the researchers, um, they've, I think, looked at the the cost of, like, running more than 100 nodes. And I think there's a certain point where you're right, like, the transactions, the communications, um, I think I think they increase dramatically as you add more and more nodes. So, like, going from 10, you know, 100 to 1,000 is, is non-trivial. Um, and it may take some research and inventiveness of, you know, the 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 people building the actual algorithms for consensus um, to come up with a solution for, for something like that. Um, from like a personal level and not a non-corporate level, I think there's interest in kind of running your own node or doing something like that. It's a common thing in, in cryptocurrency um, or blockchain technology is you want to like run your own node. I mean, who hasn't spun up, a, you know, at least a Bitcoin, a full Bitcoin node? I mean, um, Maybe a lot of people haven't. Um, if you've not done any mining or tried to mine, it's almost impossible nowadays on Bitcoin. But on Ethereum, even like five years ago, it was actually you could you could do quite a bit of work. I mean, it, the network wasn't as big, and so if you were early, you could like mine some Dogecoin or you know Litecoin or whatever other kind of. Coins. And now people move to uh, don't they move to like uh, lakes and oceans to get hydropower to start mining now? <laughs> you can't really. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty intriguing. I think the folks that, for folks that are using proof of work, um, it comes down to, it's, it really comes down to like a mathematical financial model of, well, how cheap can you get the land? How cheap can you get the electricity? Um, and how clean can that electricity be? I mean, because, you know, like you don't want to have a little blip or spike here and there. But a lot of the folks who still run miners, um, they're in like areas where cost of electricity is relatively low. You know, having lived in a Bay Area, I think... Uh, my kilowatt per hour is like it's it's multiples of people living out you know up north next to some sort of hydro dam um, but that being said i think even those technologies um, things like ethereum um, i think is trying to figure out a new consensus algorithm that it uh, they want to move from proof of work to proof of stake as well and uh, the reason for that is it just it becomes much more accessible if more people can contribute but that requires major changes to their consensus algorithm and how they determine whether or not transactions are valid. And I think Ethereum's model is something like, you know, they want to be the distributed computer, right? They're a, they're, they're a cryptocurrency, they're a blockchain project, but they're also trying to be a distributed compute, computing platform. And how does that change when you no longer have proof of work? Um, it might free up some of that CPU power to be doing, um, you know, possibly more useful like type work. It could be running applications instead. Um, and so anyway, like I think other technologies are trying to figure out their solutions. We're living in a world where, you know, energy is not unlimited yet, right? And maybe one day it will be, yeah. uh, maybe not. But uh, it, it still has a cost. And so I think from the Libra perspective, um, you know, if we were to take a huge step back, I think the reasons for it existing, aside from it using blockchain technology, is um, is I think a lot more hopefully nobler than it than just trying to you know one build cool technology or two you know 
you know, build something that generates a lot of value. It's trying to build something that's a lot more stable. And so that's why a lot of decisions around um, the number of nodes, the methods of managing, you know, uh, even the changes to the code itself and the, you know, the whitelisting of who can run a node and who can, um, who cannot, like that is all trying to stick, you know, trying to work towards the idea of having a stable um, <clears throat> blockchain um, slash, you know, uh, project that, that I think people can have find more predictable than some of the other cryptocurrency projects or blockchain projects out there. Um, and so I think, anyway, I think what I'm basically trying to say is like the goals are different um, and the approach is going to be different. And that's really, it's just trying to be done in such a way where it's a little bit more fair than, you know, even a couple years ago in the blockchain crypto um, cryptocurrency kind of, uh, industry or whatever the space in general, it was very frothy. A lot of people were like getting rich really quickly, becoming billionaires. Um, and one, you know, one thing I've learned about this project is I've still not figured out how I can become extremely wealthy from the work I do. And to me, that's mind boggling, but also really intriguing. And one of the reasons I'm so attracted to this project is I can't tell you how I would get rich. And I think the one way you would build value is by actually building value building financial tools, financial software, financial applications that generates value for people versus buying this thing and then holding and sitting on it for five years and then selling it for 6,000% return. Um, and some people may disagree with that. Um, some people um, may agree with that model. And I think it'll the project in general will attract certain types of people. That's a really interesting perspective, Eric. I never even considered it that way. Um, so you're almost saying that there's there's more of a I don't know like a non uh, like a more philanthropal <laughs> reason that Libra exists versus like like something where other cryptocurrencies it's more of a you're you're trying to make as much money as possible um, and selling and buying at the right times uh, that's the way I kind of hear it from you is that true yeah no so so I think. I've been in the space for a while. So my last startup before I joined Facebook um, was acquired by a cryptocurrency company called Ripple. And um, back in 2013, I sold a small startup. Um, it just so happened that, you know, the reason we decided to even get, have our company acquired was there was this feeling back in early 2013, late 2012, where, you know, this blockchain technology felt like kind of like a, it just felt different. And I'm not trying to say like I was a genius and I knew I did. I had no idea. I just felt like, huh, are we going to like, I thought at the time I was building like a, a consumer application, um, like a wishlist app for basically Amazon, like Amazon's wishlist stuff just isn't great. And I wanted to build a better one. And I was like, huh, do I spend five more years trying to build a wishlist app to help people buy, you know, uh, nests and, you know, uh, devices for their home. Or do we try this thing that like, huh, I don't really understand it, but, Bitcoin seems really interesting. I think back then it was like $90. I was like, ah, maybe, I don't know, this seems, this feels different. And the way that we justified having our company, you know, get acquired was, one, one we needed to raise money. So we did, needed to decide if we were going to, you know, put in five or, five more years of our life into something. Um, and it, you have to be, have conviction if you're going to raise and take money from people you like, trust, or, you know, uh, you know, you want them to believe in you and, and support you. And I, we just didn't, we couldn't find it. We couldn't have that feeling. And then when we looked at this cryptocurrency project, um, the blockchain project, we thought, wow, if this could work, right? Like if you could make, at that time, Ripple was trying to 
be faster, better than Bitcoin. Um, and I think they're still trying to find their their niche in like the world of financial technology. Maybe they found it. But at that time, we were like, huh, you know, this could be really interesting. And I didn't know what was going to happen, but I knew that it felt different. And so that's why when we joined, it felt like a right decision, even though um, the way that the acquisition played out wasn't ideal. Um, I still think I made the right choice because I got to learn so much about kind of how the world works. And from my exposure in that acquisition, I got to learn about other countries more so than the work. I mean, it kind of led me to the work I did on, at Facebook. But for example, I learned that um, there's a bunch of people all around the world who don't have bank accounts. Um, there are a bunch of people all around the world who um, remit money back to wherever they live. So, you know, if you're Filipino, you send money back to the Philippines, but you're living and working in, in Dubai or who knows where in the world as some sort of, you know, house cleaner, nanny or something like that. Um, and there's this whole world that I had no idea existed. You know, I live, um, I'm from the West Coast now, but I used to live in Hawaii. And I don't see, I mean, I see some of that information, you know, like I would see some family and friends um, receiving money or sending money back home to the Philippines and things like that. But it didn't seem, it, it wasn't like something that I could relate to. And the more I got to learn about this, I would learn about things like, um, you know, folks in Africa who, you know, they have this concept of um, money. It's not really money. It's like it's good as good as money. But instead of money, it's minutes on a cell plan. So they have this thing called airtime. And I learned this through my work with, you know, an early blockchain, which was like there are all these people that, for example, you might buy minutes off of a friend or off of a stranger even to um, make a call. Or if you have extra minutes, you would sell that minutes so you could get the money to buy a thing. And so um, to me, that's kind of like a cryptocurrency anyway. So like people are already doing all sorts of stuff like this. And there really wasn't a solution for doing all those things. Um, and I think like being exposed to that was, like, I, I wouldn't call it philanthropy. I would say it's more about kind of expanding your idea of what life is like. Because the life that we have in the you know Western United States is very different from what people have, you know, what lives people have all around the world. And even within our sliver of whatever, you know, state we are in, you know, in the Western world, um, there are people that live very different, you know, even next door or across the street. So I think the idea for me of, of you know, blockchain cryptocurrency is not about philanthropy. It's about providing people better tools um, and better access to financial technology to kind of do whatever they need to do, right? But um, but not be, you know, be restricted or have to pay incredible fees um, to send money around the world. Uh, one kind of quick anecdote is if you've ever purchased a online ticket or if you've ever purchased like a movie ticket or like a, the worst thing, like a concert ticket or something like that, and you see these convenience fees that are built on to um, oh, you know, yeah. your ticket price, yep. that stuff is frustrating. But like, you know what, I'm going to go see, you know, uh, what are, what's the, what's the common thing, right? I'm going to go see Hamilton. And then you're like, okay, my ticket's uh, $79 and then processing fees, 12 and convenience fee is six. Right. And that's before taxes. Right. So like, there's all these, these crazy fees. And I'm like, but wait a minute, technology costs them nothing. There's an investment. Yes. But like, aren't they making all that money back on like having lower costs for running their business? Right. Right. So it's like really confusing for someone like me to exp ex kind of experience that. Yeah, there was lawsuits. Yes. There was lawsuits all over the um, bunch of lawsuits from artists, right? For sure. For well, so like, I'm not even. I'm not really trying to go and hound on the the ticket company. It's more yeah. of like, okay, 
I would say if I didn't see a movie for the rest of my life in a theater, and if I didn't see a, a musician play for the rest of my life, I'd be okay. You know, it doesn't, it won't, it won't ruin my life. Now, imagine instead of those fees that you're seeing um, lomped, glommed onto um, ticket sales, imagine that's you remitting money to your mom, right? Like you work in a foreign country, but you send money back to your kids or your family, and then. You're getting like a you're getting a, a transaction fee, which is like several dollars, and you're getting like another fee on top of that. Then you're getting a convenience fee, then a withdrawal fee, the deposit fee, a security fee, and like at the end you're charging getting charged like thirty, forty percent to send a hundred bucks. So like to send a hundred bucks, you just spent thirty dollars, right? Like that to me is insane, right? Like the cost of transferring money should cost nothing. Like there's nothing moving. There's nothing, nothing moving around. It's just bits in it's, a database getting updated. Yep. And so the cost to me is egregious. And I, and that's what attracts me even more to these blockchain technology companies is because, Hey, you know, I'm not having this problem. I'm very fortunate. I, I work in tech and I'm lucky, but not everybody in my family does it. I'm the only one really. So if I'm the only one and, and I can already see that life is very different, much harder for folks that aren't in tech I can't imagine what it's like for people that, like, I don't know, you know. And so and I hear these stories and I hear the stories of people, um, you know, like in, in South America, in Asia, um, and Africa. And I'm not saying this as some sort of thing like we're going to change the world, we're going to make the whole world better. Like, shouldn't we try to at least give it a shot, right? Like, of course, you want to work with the folks that are already there and provide solutions that make sense. But at the end of the day, um, there are a couple options that are out there. And one of those options are proof of work type technologies, and then there's technologies like Libra that are trying to build a stable type uh, cryptocurrency that allows people to exchange value um, and also do it in a way where um, they're not being charged crazy fees. And I'm not saying like no fee is the goal. I don't know what the exact goal is, but it's definitely not going to be a large percentage of uh, transactions total value. Um and I think that's good. What happens if all like okay, if I was if I ran those businesses, I'd be I'd be kind of upset. I'd probably try to lobby to change regulation. Um, but you know, I think not everybody in the world is trying to send money as a business. And so, for folks that aren't, for the everyday people, um, it just seems obvious that exchanging value shouldn't ha shouldn't have as much of a, a cost to it. And I think Libra provides that by the goals that it's aiming to do, by the structure that it's kind of taken to get to this point that we're at. Right. Um, and, and then I was I was going to say, Eric, like even today, mm -hmm. like with me, I um, if I want to send money to a family member, for example, I'm my, I'm considering things like a a wire which has costs, or I'm considering things like going to the bank and doing a transfer in person, which has its own costs, time and money. Right. And it's. Yeah, we haven't solved that problem where you can efficiently send send currency in a cheap way really fast. Um, well, so, yeah, and, yeah, and so that's that's the thing that's intriguing to me, um, and that's why I'm attracted to this project. Um, yes, like you're right, like it, it it doesn't seem solved, but I don't know, man. It seems pretty solved to me for like the Western world. Like it's just they're just hacking on a fee because somebody has to process a piece of paper, right? And like. And even then, like, is it really worth twenty dollars to send a wire? And forty if you're not a member, and fifty if you need, like, you know what I mean? It starts getting a little crazy. You know, if you're sending a thousand dollars or ten thousand dollars. Well, even um, yeah, even in the Western world, though, not not everybody has PayPal, and not everybody has Venmo, and they're still right. they're still going to their bank daily to withdraw cash, and and even even just here, right? That 
it's still hard for folks to kind of wrap their mind around, I have to install this app and then I have to configure my account and I have to go to my bank to make sure like everything's set up correctly. I don't know. I don't know. I, I'm, you're right. In the Western world, it is, it is kind of solved, but um, it's, it's not easier. fully. I think, yeah. I think what it is, it's not solved, but it's easier. Yeah. And then most of the stuff we're doing, it is like, it, it's, I don't know. It's different when it's like your livelihood. It's different when you're trying to wire money so that someone can like, you know, fix up their house after some sort of, uh, you know, disaster uh, or natural event. Like maybe the, the roof broke or something like that. It's different when, you know, in those cases, I would pay those fees. Right. And so I think that's where I start. I think it starts getting unfair. And, I, and again, I don't think this is like the only way to solve this problem. I don't think Libra is going to solve all the financial woes in the world, but I think it's good to have this option um, so that other people can kind of determine where and how to use these things. Um, and to take a, uh, a quick uh, step back regarding kind of Libra in, in general, like it's trying to be stable. And that's why I said earlier, like I can't figure out a way how to buy this thing and then sit on it and become, you know, uh, to make a million dollars off of a very small investment. Um, whereas if you look at other projects um, in the space, um, a lot of folks have looked at it as like lottery tickets. And because of that, I think um, it, it like when I get that feeling with a project, it tends to I tend to reject it because I'm like, ah, you know, so what's the strategy? I buy it. I sit on it. I type it up and then I sell it for like a double my money like that. That to me just seems unfair. Right. Like I didn't really do anything. I was just lucky. And I think like. Um, there may be more op opportunity where you could build software that's actually used, right? Um, I would like to see people sending money here and there. Um, I think that could be interesting. Um, I'd like to see people using it to, to buy stuff, to, to, to build tools. Um, and that to me is a, the most interesting stuff or interesting parts of this project. So let's um, shift gears a little bit. Although first, I think I, think I used a word philanthropal. Um, earlier yeah, i'm not even that's sure word. that's a word um so merriam webster no <laughs> um <laughs> but i think my meaning was understood i hope but i'm sorry for butchering the english language um i had a tongue-tied moment there um anyway let's shift gears a little bit um and talk about libra and open source um so libra like a core principle like even like just a first principle of when even libra came about, right, was that it was going to be open source. The, the blockchain, um, the, 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 the technology, the spec, um, a bunch of other things are going to be open source as part of this. What parts, uh, well, first of all, why was that decision made? Why, why did you decide to open source Libra? And what parts of Libra are actually open sourced? Got it. Um, so that's a good question. Um, the reason I joined the project um, was I actually joined from a very skeptical point of view. Right. Having, again, been in the space for a long time, I was like, I don't know. I mean, can the, can Facebook launch a project that people are going to trust with their money? Um, I am quite skeptical. And so um, when I talked with folks on the team, they had suggested, well, what can we do to make people trust the project more? I said, well, um, you know, I didn't say that I didn't make the decision to open source. I thought like, well, you have to increase the trust. Right. You have to provide people more insight or uh, find a way to look at stuff to inspect it. And open source provides that path, right? It provides you a way to inspect the code before you run it. It, it provides you a way to contribute to that code to change the way that it does this particular thing. Um, and to your question of like what of the Libra core 
um, technology is open source, and I would say all of it is. So all the technology that is used to that runs on the current testnet is open sourced. You can go to github.com slash Libra slash Libra, and if you download that, you will get a project built in Rust primarily um, that runs the actual uh, the network itself. You can even spin up your own. You could run like three different nodes, um, or on your laptop you could run a couple nodes, you know, on different windows, and you could simulate your own network. Um, and so all this technology is there, and it's a, you know, open source is a critical part of uh, you know how we look at the the project itself. We want to provide access, yes, but we also want to provide a way to inspire people to get involved to help make this be better than it currently is. And I feel like open source provides that. Um, and then in addition to that, we are trying to involve other people like other companies. And, you know, if it's like a closed source thing and you have a contract and you have to agree to like sign this contract to then take a look at the code and maybe make suggestions, um, the world moves much faster nowadays. And so I think having access to the project allows people to contribute directly, um, and get involved. And there are other things in the works that will help make access to and changes to um, or influences allow influencing more easy um, through more, uh, I would say, formal processes. Um, and the reason that it needs to be formal is, again, like at the end of the day, this will be a system for um, managing uh, or facilitating, you know, billions of dollars of, of value. And so we want to make sure that the changes that are made are done in a way that um, people can agree to and uh, and it's mark my last, you know, it's famous last words, but like, I think there's a way to do it properly. Um, some of the things that, uh, the team has been looking at have been around, uh, different types of improvement protocols. So if you're familiar at all with Python, uh, Python has the pip process oh. and, uh, uh, the Bitcoin's improvement protocol is inspired directly by the pip process and Ethereum's improvement protocol is inspired by Bitcoin's improvement protocol. And so it all kind of feeds off of the open source thinking. And to kind of give a quick ex, uh, explanation of what a, a improvement protocol is, it's a series of processes and steps to allow for major changes, minor changes within the specification of a technology or the actual code itself. So if they want to add a feature, like, you know, if we want to um, change how, uh, how many, you know, how many things you can do per unit of time, based off of whatever sort of algorithm change, um, that could be a formal uh, improvement protocol piece. And the team is trying to figure that piece out, but they want to involve the founding members and the public in general to kind of help move this and usher along this process. And so um, being open source allows this to happen, but if it was, again, a closed source, you would have a lot of discussions that happen um, you know, in the back, in the back rooms privately. And although that may not be the intention, like the intention is not meant to mislead people, it feels better when people can have an, in some sort of way to kind of inspect and see these things. And so, um, as it, as it stands, the project is very simple, but I think it will expand to be much more formal and allow for much wider diversity of opinions, um, to make, uh, to make changes to LibreCore, um, more possible or more easy to, to, to happen. One of the uh, parts of Libra is a new programming language, which has been dubbed Move. Um, so you can use Move to basically program for um, the blockchain um, and do other things with it. Uh, what what prompted having a new programming language created? Why couldn't existing programming languages be utilized for Libra? 
um, I think is, if I recall correctly, Move is based on Rust, which is you know a very good systems programming language. Um, but why did you have to build an entirely new language for this? That's a good question. So to to kind of like talk about what Move is, Move is a smart contracting language, and the difference between a smart contracting language and a general programming language is it's built from the ground up to be a language that is used on the blockchain. And why why didn't we just take one of the other languages that existed out there? Um, that's a good question too. And I think the reasoning for this was a lot of the languages that exist right now, there's, I think there's things like Bitcoin Script, there's Ethereum, Solidity. They might also have other versions coming out. I think there's one called Viper. Um, I don't actually know what the next uh, uh, language is for uh, smart contracting for other pr uh, programming languages is. Um, but a lot of those languages were organic. And so they evolved over time and take certain things into consideration, certain sort of, um, uh, like, I think they tried to solve it their own way as they could as it came along. Whereas um, with with the Libra project, there was an opportunity where um, it could be sort of built from day one with the, the prior knowledge of um, kind of security challenges that have already you know plagued some of the other languages. Um, for example, there have been some smart contracts that have kind of wreaked havoc on uh, the Ethereum space. Um, the most famous one is the, the DAO, the DAO. Um, in this case, um, someone found a way to return back the balance, like I don't know if it was the entire balance of a trend, uh, of a contract to a place that it should not have gone, um, and this caused a lot of problems for people that had supported this um, particular project. And so, um, rather than kind of work with kind of work with a language that's, had, that's evolved to to combat some of this stuff, um, I think the team believed that it was better to kind of use the state of the art in research um, and provide a language that could solve for these problems, not by having a way to work around them, but by removing entire subset of, you know, flaws in the, in a particular language. Um, and so that's why move was created. Move is a smart contract, smart contract contracting language. Um, and the idea there is like, actually it's really exciting. I'd say of the, uh, if you look at the whole Libra ecosystem, the thing that I think developers, including myself, like find most intriguing, I actually, like I'm learning Rust. I'm not an expert in Rust. Um, I don't have much uh, exposure to to building on it. But yep, same here. I'm really, yeah, yeah. I'm really intrigued by Move itself. Like I think there's this idea of like, wow, you know, if you could build a, imagine you could build a financial smart contract um, that's used by billions of people. That to me is super exciting. Now, how would you do that? I'm not so certain on like how you would get a contract in front of so many people. Um, there are many different ways for that to occur. They could happen on a primitive lower level where they're like the, the functionality is baked in earlier, like lower level. Um, or it could be something that's kind of run externally or run as your own um, kind of script. Uh, but at the end of the day, these, these transactions, these uh, smart contracts, they're meant to provide pro programmatic control of money, right? And so, for example, like what's a good example of a smart contract? Um, well, I think a really good one would be um, like I want to borrow $5 from you and I promise to pay you back, right, And uh, uh, at the end of whatever. And if I don't pay you back, um, I'll owe you a dollar more the next week, right? I could write a smart contract that said, um, you know, uh, I deposit a certain amount of money, you take the money that's been deposited, and then you deposit it to another place, and then you wait um, a certain amount of time 
um, to then, you know, uh, get paid back. And if that time, if the balance at that time in the future is not the expected amount, then change the expected amount to be $1 more, you know, like, like really simple things like that, um, are examples of what a smart contract provides, but there can be much more complex things. Like, um, if you've ever bought anything of value, um, like a house or something like that, um, the idea of escrow, where if certain, certain things, certain requirements must be met before, the amount of money that is currently being held in escrow can be transferred. Um, smart contracts are, are allowed there as well. And then there's like a whole class of solutions and ideas that don't exist yet, and I don't know what they're going to be. And I think that to me is where um, uh, where I think Move is really exciting. It's like what's people? What are people going to build when um, when they uh, have this technology that's built on a stable currency that's being used all throughout the world um, and and one thing I think we should talk about is the opportunity, and I'd be happy to talk about that after. Yeah, um, one question about um, getting started with Move do, do, is this something that's approachable by anyone, any develop, anyone with development and programming experience, or does it take a while to learn? Um, is it if you know? Is it if you know Rust, you're familiar with Move, but if you don't know Rust, you're going to have a big learning curve. Um, kind of, what's your take on that? So I would say my take is the functionality of Move is relatively straightforward. So I think someone that has programming experience should be able to pick it up rather quickly. I think um, there are certain, like, it's still early. So, like, don't expect the best experience. And the reason for that is not because we didn't try to make it good. It's because we're trying to make the system stable before we can make the system look really, really nice. And I think that's also kind of a cop-out, but... Um, I think it's just fair to say that uh, that people really do care and are thinking about ways to make um, move smart contracts better, um, and anybody can pick it up. I don't think it's that hard. Um, there are challenges, though, like things aren't completely formalized and set in stone, and the reason for that is there's a lot of uh, changes that are un going underway. Um, not that the major parts are changing, but that we're still trying to define, you know, what, what is move? What's the spec? And until the spec exists, I think like anybody, anybody who's tried to join a language or use a language when it first comes out, like version one or before, before version one, um, it's painful, right? Like it, it's not that, it's not that things don't work. It's just that like things, the way you do things may change. And so it's sort of like a flag. It's like a, yeah. it's a flag for people that are interesting, interested in doing this, but realize if you build an app um, and you come back one year later, uh, no guarantees that it's going to be um, able to run the same way without some sort of changes. So it's still worth pursuing. I think we have a couple of white papers that are already out there. Um, you could take a look at developers.libra.org. Um, you can also visit libra.org to kind of get a bigger, bigger picture view. Um, I tend to skew more towards the technical side of opportunity, um, but I think uh, uh, developers.libra.org can help you get started, run a node, connect to a node really quickly, um, and then run your first... Uh, move transaction script and uh, kind of go from there. Awesome. So I just have a couple last questions. You mentioned Calibra earlier. Um, what is Calibra? I know Calibra is the wallet, right? That Facebook is developing. Is is that part of the open source process? Um, can you kind of just give a high level overview of what's going on in, in, in the Calibra world? Got it. So, well, let's first talk about why I think Okay, this is like, the, I think, the most exciting part. There's a lot of exciting parts. I've already said move is the most exciting part from a technical <laughs> standpoint. Yeah. But from an opportunity standpoint, um, 
Calibra is extremely exciting. And the thing that makes Calibra exciting is Calibra um, is building the wallet. And the wallet is basically a way for people to, you know, store and trans transfer, trade, whatever they want to do with their Libra stairs. Um, but from the perspective of the Facebook world. So Calibra is building a, a wallet and what that's going to do for the cryptocurrency blockchain technology communities is open the largest floodgate that's been ever like provided into, uh, I would say a space before. And this is me thinking like everything works out great. Right. But like, I think Facebook has, I think a published like 2 billion, at least 2 billion, if not more, um, members across or users across active users across their, um, the, the Facebook application, Instagram, WhatsApp and Calibra, uh, is, 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 and I think will work. I don't know how the details of this, um, will provide basically the function wallet functionality, um, for Facebook and granted it's a totally separate thing, totally separate project. And information is separate, completely separate, um, doesn't share phone home back to Facebook. Um, but imagine, imagine for, for a moment that you're a blockchain developer and you're building on, uh, you know, a technology like, let's say, Ethereum. So you're built, building on Ethereum or you're building on like something like Cosmos, one of the, you know, projects that are, I've learned a lot from Ethereum and like are building on improvements. The total amount of people that you will have access to are at least even from the developer community is under 30,000 people. So the amount of people that can code in Solidity, uh, the amount of people that have built or can build blockchain or have contributed to blockchain technologies in general, if you put them all together, probably less than six figures. So less than 100,000 people. And I'm being very generous here. I'm, I'm double counting. Um, the amount of people that when Calibra turns on its wallet for, you know, like an entire property, even 1% of, let's say, uh, 2 billion of the, the active members of uh, the Facebook world, even 1% of that is going to be more than the entire current uh, ecosystem for uh, cryptocurrency and blockchain technologies. So wow. in terms of opportunity... Um, there is a huge opportunity for people who are building on Libra or building Libra smart contracts and things like that to have access to these people coming in through Calibra. And so like that to me from a business standpoint is a huge opportunity. Um, you could try to be first, you could move quickly and try to build some sort of application. Um, I don't know. Um, and, and from the context of Calibra, their wallet and, uh, and the way that it's being built and from the Libra core technology standpoint, um, we're trying to keep, or we're working to keep the, uh, the idea of interoperability as a high priority. And the idea there is Calibra builds a wallet. It should be able to send, um, Libra from Calibra to any other wallet. And the reason for this is it just solidifies the opportunity, um, that I'd mentioned before, which is, you know, hundreds of million potential active users of a new financial technology. To me, that's extremely exciting. And if interoperability is in place, it means that people can, um, you know, they can get involved, they can try things out, they can send money here and there and not be worried about, 
you know, being cut off from this giant spigot of brand new people that are going to be coming in and learning. And part of the, the, the work that the Calibre team has been doing is trying to understand their user base. And so they're spending a lot of time in the different countries learning um, and and building for what, again, like I had mentioned, like I'm West Coast centric, right? I'm, I'm, I'm uh, American. So like, even though I travel, my life primarily is in the United States. Um, and yet the world is a bigger place. And so they spend a lot of time traveling the world and making sure that the technologies that they're building, the solutions that they're building um, work for other cultures. Um, and it, it, to talk about their open source contributions, so a lot of the work, um, primarily the work that's done on LibreCore is built and being done by the Calibra engineering team. There's a small team uh, that's not really that small. In, in the world of Facebook, it's a small team, but like in the in the larger world, there's a lot of people building Libra Core, and there's a lot of people building Calibra, and um, those teams are very, you know, they're different. They're not the same people, um, and the folks on Calibra, the work that they're doing, um, that's going to lead to the wallet technology that I've talked about. The folks that are building the Libra Core, there's also folks. Um, on Calibra doing research. And so the research work that is being done, um, uh, generally research tends to be a very open type of work. Like you, you publish your results because you want people to replicate it. And so if you have code or anything related to that, if you have a paper, you want to disseminate that as far and wide as you can. And so one core part of the Calibra story is that the research um, that work that is being done by the, um, the, the engineering team, research engineering team, um, is uh, being shared through white papers um, and then through projects and code that's released um, on Calibra's uh, uh, research GitHub repo. So that's a big part of the work that they're doing. And really what they're trying to do here is to share their lessons learned, that they share their um, experiences to help further um, you know, the blockchain space and further the state of the art um, for the space in general. Did you did you say um, that there was a Calibra GitHub repo? So is it github.com slash Calibra? Yeah, it's the github.com slash Calibra slash research. Um, there are a couple other projects that are in there that may be dependencies of the Libra project. Uh, um, and some of these are there because, um, you know, in open source in general, like when you're using a package that needs to be patched to support a new function or feature, um, you can build it into the core project itself through their improvement process, which may take, you know, several months. Or you can fork and add it and then, you know, ho hopefully wait until that process is completed. So there are a couple projects that are in there that are forks of other um, open source projects that have had certain functions and features added to help um, make the Libra project um, work better. And it's all open source. There's also other projects that will be coming out soon. Um, there's some in the Rust space that are aimed at helping um, package or ha helping maintainers kind of keep an eye on open source contributions and any sort of changes related to their packages. Like if you ever worked on a package or a project that has package manager mm -hmm. um, and someone adds or slips in a package that you didn't know about, like left pad, I'm not, I'm not going to like go tease that, but like <laughs> if they sneak in a certain package that, you know, maybe you're not aware of, you don't know what it does, it may increase or pro provide a um, security um concern yeah um there's a project that'll be coming out soon by the research uh from not from research but from the open source team uh on calibra that will help people just keep an eye on those sorts of things and if the change is too 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 large it may even allow people to um flag it in their um in their on their prs themselves so a lot of our listeners have just gotten a really broad and really great background on both Libra and Calibra. Can Eric, can you tell us what's next? 
What's next for, for Libra? What's next for Calibra? What should, what should we expect in the next six months, a year? What, what's going to happen? Great. That's a good question. So just today, um, I don't know when this podcast will go live. It may go live in a month or a week. Um, just today, the first announcement around the roadmap uh, was released. We just published it to the blog. And in this blog, um, the high-level features have been outlined. And this provides some insight into kind of where the engineering team is focusing their effort. In addition to this, um, a Kanban was created using the GitHub projects that identifies, again, the high-level features and allows people to kind of track the progress of those features through um, through the board, the project board. Um, and this is a one good way to kind of see what's coming in the future. Um, expect to see like a monthly or bi-monthly um, update towards the roadmap. And the roadmap is like the, the, the set of features that are required for, uh, for the Libra network to reach uh, main net main network from the current test network and there's a lot of work there and so um, basically i would say keep an eye on that and then for folks that are interested in participating you can take a look at um, the online libra forum which is it's community.libra.org um, this is where all conversations uh, we try to kind of have the conversations there in addition to the github issues um, as a way to have like fewer methods or you know fewer places to keep an eye on, because as the as the number if if you have too many places to watch, it, it's just hard to know where to um, pay pay attention. And if you've ever been like, if you ever communicated with somebody who messages you on Messenger or on email and then on WhatsApp and then on text message, like it gets a little confusing where to have that conversation. So the preferred um, I would say forum for discussions is the uh, the Libra discourse. Um, and in addition, in addition to that, there's going to be more updates regarding um, how to get involved. And like we keep saying this, but the reason is the Libra Association itself um, is kind of functioning as if it's been finalized, but that actually doesn't happen for another um, two weeks when the actual Libra Association charter is ratified. And in that ratification process, um, the, the, the founding members that I talked about or mentioned, um, formally will have joined the association. And that's when I believe, um, there will be, uh, there'll be this kind of renewed energy and certainty around the project that I think right now, a lot of us are just functioning as if that will happen. But once that occurs, it will be a sort of, I would say a new world. I think it's going to be a very different place once that stuff is done, once the ratification occurs. Um, and then finally, um, the formal processes for making changes, I think, will be phased in over time. But I believe that um, those things are going to be done with the support of that Libra Association founding members who who ratify, so that they all have their say. Um, and then the scope will, over time, increase and increase to include more and more people, especially as processes are put in place, so that contribute people that contribute or try to contribute. Um, uh, know that their contribution is being at least acknowledged, if not accepted. Um, and then one final, final, final point is, um, you know, one of the biggest challenges and opportunities I saw when I um, saw this project was that, you know, hey, this is a chance to kind of create an open source program from the ground, from the ground up, build it from scratch. And um, Facebook has all these really great tools, like shout out to the tooling team at uh, on the open source team. Um, you know, they have great tools to help you know, keep things in check for legal reasons, things like CLAs, things like, you know, adding people to repos. Right now, that's pretty much me and a small group of people um, on the Calibra team. And 
the there is work being done, and it will be completed soon, to allow for automated uh, CLA um, uh, identification on PRs to make it easier for awesome. the engineering team and soon the maintainers to know if a contribution can and should be merged in, if it's of some sort of marital value, like if if the change is useful and like um, and uh, you know adds adds some functionality that a, a large amount of people or users would want, then you know they can accept those things. But currently, right now, it's a very manual process, and it's like it's a growing pain. But I feel that um, the work that we've done to identify the flows and all sorts of things like that um, soon that will be um, taken care of, and then people will feel like. This project is is more than just you know a Calibra project or a Facebook project. It's it's a project that's like it's its own it's on its own. And I feel like October fourteenth plus the coming tools to help automate uh, things like this um, will really give what I think like the minimum necessary um, tooling and feature set to kind of grow to be hundreds if not thousands of uh, of developers throughout the world. Awesome. And just to clarify, the date we're recording this podcast is the 2nd of October, 2019. Um, I really hope this goes out before November. <laughs> um, hopefully it's not a month later. Um, I'm going to provide a bunch of the resources that you mentioned, Eric, in the show notes. Um, I wanted to give just at a high level f- um, places for folks to go if they want to learn more. It's Libra.org. Um, to learn about Libra. If you're a developer and want to learn how to um, interact um, programmatically with Libra, it's developers.libra.org. And if you want to learn about Calibra, which is the wallet that Facebook's developing, go to calibra.com. And I'll provide more links to the blog post that Eric mentioned and and other resources as well. Um, Eric, thanks so much. You're our, you're our first repeat guest, I believe, on the program. <laughs> um, I'll have to double check that, but I believe that's true. Um, and I really appreciate you talking about Libra, Calibra and the open sourcing of it, um, all the details. Um, I hope you'll agree to come back, uh, three, six months down the line to give us an update about what's happening. I think this is a very, it's just a, it's just a transformative project that I'm really looking forward to, um, being a part of as a Facebook employee and just as a, a person who really has an interest in these things in general. So really appreciate you um, coming on to give us the current lay of the land. Thanks so much. Cool. Thanks for having me. Um, I love talking about this stuff and I hope people can get started. And one other thing is if you find something that could be done better, um, please try to get a hold of one of us um, either, you know, finding us in the discourse and flagging us or tagging us um, or, you know, submitting an issue and, and giving us a heads up there so that we can try to improve this, um, the work that we're doing. We really want to expand the the projects that a lot of people that want to contribute can contribute, um, and we want to do it in a way that's, you know, that I think makes sense for the stage of the project. And as it gets bigger, I think um, your impact or ability to kind of like influence this project um, could be hopefully uh, more, more uh, something that's more possible and or easier to do. So thanks for having me. Yeah, and that's the call to action, everyone. Go try Libra and um, provide feedback as you can. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Eric. Hi, this is Joel Marcy, creator and host of The Diff. If you like what you heard today, tell your friends. Like it, share it, review it. Learn more about our program at opensource.facebook.com. And if the content you heard today or if any of our podcasts pique your interest, Check out facebook.com slash careers to learn more about the challenges we're solving and running an open source program at scale. I'm out.